Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. All right, we are talking here with Rebecca Brooks. She is the CEO and founder of Alter Agents. And um, the most interesting thing about uh, Rebecca is she has a passion to reveal the consumer truth. So we're going to get into what that means and how she got there. So welcome, Rebecca. How are you? Good. Thank you, Darshan. How are you? Hey, excellent. Um, so I want to jump right in and uh, find out. Tell me a little bit about your journey and maybe some pivotal moments that led you to become passionate about revealing consumer truths. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, my educational background is in primate behavior. Um, and that is really where my uh, love of observing behavior and inferring what that means uh, came from. Um, took a detour in graduate school. It ended up not being a good career choice. But uh, definitely, you know, when I landed in market research, I was so happy to find something that had the same kind of effect, right? So what people say and what they do and why are they doing it and what's motivating them. And um, so I've always carried that with me through my career. Um, just some of the, the lessons from anthropology about how we look at the world and how our own views can cloud what we see and all that kind of good stuff. So, um, and I, I worked in market research, both in the qualitative and quantitative side. Um, I worked at several small companies and large companies. Um, my last job before heading off and starting Alter Agents was at Holland Partners, where I was co-running the LA office there um, and started at that uh, branch of Holland Partners when it was just two people. So it was really fun to watch that grow and expand. And uh, then I headed off on my own in 2010. That's great. That's great. So I have to ask you, uh, what are the overlaps between primates and humans? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shockingly so much. It's, it's, um, I remember chatting with a professor in college about the sort of dilemma that primatologists have where, you know, we treat it very much like a science. And so you can only really prove what is repeatable, right. In an experimental kind of way. Um, But what you see and what you can infer is so much richer, but we're not really putting that into the textbooks in that way. Um, I think anybody that spends, you know, a few minutes at a zoo and watches uh, a healthy zoo and watches um, primates will understand that there are so many things that they do that are analogous to us. There's a lot of emotion, um, a lot of uh, play and, you know, social uh, activity going on. So um, I think for me, this is actually something I wrote about in the book. Um, the, The actual thing that has been the most influential for me from primatology was actually working with a professor in Puerto Rico who... Um, traditionally primates had been studied sort of, you know, as a group, you just Mm -hmm. sit among the group and you watch them and you see what happens. And he changed the methodology and had us follow uh, one female every day during the mating season. And that whole day we were with her. 
And what we learned was so much more fascinating because they would often leave the group and come back to the group. And when they were gone, they were actually, you know, you would walk into this bush with them um, and then there would be a male from another group there. And it felt like an arranged meeting, (laughs) you know, I'll see you at this bush at two o'clock. And so there were all sorts of things that we uncovered about their behavior and um, their mating preferences by changing the methodology. And so that's something that's always really stuck with me is, should we be looking at this through a different lens? You know, it's interesting. It made me think, uh, you know, we're often in research trying to tap into the subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of times it's, you know, actions reveal uh, much more than words. And in your situation, you can't really communicate with the primates, but you can observe their actions. So it was really kind of like observing their subconscious and stuff, I guess, in a way. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's so... It's so easy to start just, you know, applying our own emotions and experiences on top of the behaviors that you're seeing, you know, and really um, anthropomorphize them. Um, so it's a little challenging because you can't ask them what their motivations are. Right. But in the same way that I think it's also you, you also have to have a little bit of a distance from the way that humans answer things, too. Like there was this great study that came out um, and the book they published about it was called Rubbish. And it was a study that um, anthropology students did where they went through a neighborhood and they surveyed people about what they bought, how many packages of cigarettes, how many boxes of cereal, you know, and they asked them all of these things. And what they found was, and actually, so what they did then was they went through their garbage, through their rubbish, Mm -hmm. and looked to see, did those two things match up? And they didn't at all. People bought a lot more alcohol and cigarettes than they said they did. Um, People had a lot more junk food. And... um, you know, that study came out quite some time ago and really sort of, I think, helped set the stage that when people are answering questions, they're answering kind of an idealized version of themselves. Um, and so, you know, in, in my company, we try to do a lot of qualitative and quantitative mix. And we're adding in neuroscience in these last couple of years to really try to add methodologies to get a full sort of 360, what they say, what they do and how they feel. So give me an example of how you do that. And because one of my next questions was going to be, uh, you know, how do you reveal these consumer truths and what does it actually mean? But it sounds like you're doing it with a mix of methodologies and you're able to try to, uh, you know, peel some of those layers back. huh? Um, can you give me an example of uh, what you're talking about? Yeah, sure. Um, and I don't, you know, and just to like sort of pull it back for a second, mixed methodologies are great. But I think we should also be very critical of the way that we kind of traditionally approach any research, you know, whether it's the focus group or, uh, you know, a major quant study or whatever it may be. I think there's always ways for us to try to um, adapt and evolve those to make them more powerful. So the example that I have is um, actually what has really become a foundational learning for us in our organization that we're sharing with our clients is a shift from looking at brand, but instead of asking in tenders in the category, you should to talk to recent purchasers. So rather than asking people, what will you do, which is a perfect environment for people to give you their hypothetical best self, right? Um, ask them what they did and why they did it. And that has actually, so we started doing this kind of shopper research. If you recently bought in this category we were interested in, just walk us through what was the first thing, the next thing, the next thing that you did. Um, And what was coming out of that research was actually pretty much in contrast to the brand tracker work that I was doing for clients in the same category. 
um, the data was coming back differently, the reasons why they bought this brand over another, or how they approached the journey was quite different. So making that one change in terms of who we're talking to actually sort of snowballed over the course of the last 10 years, um, what ended up culminating in this book we've got coming out in April. That's basically saying like the way that we are asking consumers questions is hampering the insights that we're able to get from it. And it might be leading brands in a wrong direction. And so we've really got to think very carefully about the people we talk to and the questions that we ask of them. Um, and always be thinking about it from the consumer's perspective, not from what we as brands want to know, but what is their experience. So let's talk about your book that's coming out. It's called Influencing Shopper Decisions. Um, yeah. You told me a little bit about the impetus behind this, but tell me a little bit more of like, give me some examples of what do you mean by uh, questions we've traditionally asked versus what we should be really asking and, and how you came about to that revelation. Yeah, so um, we started working with Google in 2010 on research that ultimately ended up going into their Zero Moment of Truth um, book that came out. And that was all about, if you can remember back that far, when Google needed to prove that they deserved your ad dollars, right? When they uh, were still trying to make a case that search was a good place to advertise it. Um, and so we were looking at really what are the steps that people take in their shopping journey across, you know, dozens of categories. Um, and we started replicating that work. And one of the things that really, you know, people kept trying to talk about a, what is the defined path, right? What's the defined path to purchase? And what we realized is that there is no defined path. We couldn't map anything out. People started in all sorts of different areas and we're actually cycling back and going through sources again. Um, you know, they'd learn a little bit more and then they'd go back in and do a bit more research in the same place. Um, the other thing that became really apparent is as we were doing this over time is that people started to do more and more research and, and more research in the sense of scopes of it that we don't even really comprehend or think about. So when we do this research, we ask people 45 plus sources of information that can be anything from a TV ad to a radio ad to a word of mouth recommendation from a friend, um, a, a, you know, social media influencer, whatever it might be. Um, and on average now, people are using at least 10 sources before buying something. And that's not just high consideration categories. That can be a toothbrush. Um, it can be household cleaning products. Um, so we did a research study among 6,000 shoppers in the U.S. that actually fed into the book. Um, and I believe, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe like household cleaning products, people on average used 11.7 sources before they bought which a lot of people think of that category as a very rote, you know, sort of like mechanical, right. I need Lysol, I ran out of Lysol, I'm going to go buy it. Um, so then it got us asking, well, why are people researching so much? Like, what are the things that are driving the need to research? And it's really a lot of technology uh, forces and societal forces, right? So we all know that in the last 10 years with, um, you know, really Web 2.0 and advert. Um, the advent of e-commerce um, with smartphones, right? We've created a lot of opportunity to have everything at your fingertips. Um, that's a, that's given the accessibility for research, right? That we mm -hmm. now can do more. It's easy, right? It's right at your fingertips, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. The other part of it is that we are training shoppers to expect innovation and advancement in every category. 
if you think about the huge changes that we've undergone as shoppers, and it was accelerated during COVID, where most of us started uh, using online even more and, and getting more comfortable with new um, new ways of doing things, we have gotten used to things that you know ten years ago would have been so strange. Uh, with Uber and Lyft, getting into a stranger's car or renting a stranger's house on Airbnb or ordering a monthly shave kit, you know, online without ever seeing the product in person. Um, there are all sorts of things that we've just gotten very comfortable with very quickly. Well, I even remember even even something basic as people were saying, well, I ever use a credit card, you know, now it's become like not, not an issue, right? So yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's exactly right. Like the things that we take for granted now that if you had talked to younger Darshan and younger Rebecca would have been really shocking to think about. And that pace of innovation and disruption is only going to get faster. And products are innovating now. So just walking down a grocery store aisle, you've got, you know, 15 different kinds of pancake mix now, you know, protein and gluten-free and uh, you know, just all kinds of variety and change. So what's happening is that whether a person's going to buy something that they bought two months ago or two years ago, they're going into it with an expectation that there's probably something new out there. And we have this ability to research. And what it's doing is it's turning people into what we call promiscuous shoppers. This pattern of Promiscuity, not in a low morale sense, but promiscuity in the sense that we are much more open to and willing to explore new brands and new products um, and new you know, features. So we're coming into categories much more open-minded. Let me give you a data point. In the study that we did for the book, we asked people two questions in, in this broader survey that we did. Mm-hmm. Did you start with a brand in mind? So this is recent purchasers. They can actually tell us facts, not hypotheticals. Did you start with a brand in mind? And did you buy that brand? Among boomers, it was 56% of people did. And I think the way that we've talked about brand loyalty, that still seems low to me in the way that we've made brand loyalty such a grandiose you know, thing. Um, 56% of boomers, but it's stair steps down. Gen X is less than that. Millennials less than that, but when you look at Gen Z, it's a it's a precipitous drop. They go down to I think thirty two percent, and we really believe that this is not a trend or a moment in time that's going to this this Gen Z group is never going to age into the behavior of boomers, right? We are at a point in time, an inflection point where loyalty from now on is going to be incredibly hard to hold on to. Um. And when we think about, you know, my kids are 11 and 7, and all of these things are so native to them, right? They're growing up in a world where they can ask the Alexa to put something on the shopping list for them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That this idea of brand loyalty, I think, is going to continue to um, not erode, but it's going to change. It's going to to reconfigure. Um, And so this idea of shopper promiscuity that's happening, that our data has been identifying, increasing over the last decade, then takes us to the questions that we're asking. And the traditional questions that we ask of awareness, familiarity, consideration, brand and imagery attributes, um, all of those things really don't bear any resemblance to the way that shoppers are making their decisions. And that has led us to 
we need to redo the way we think about brand tracking, brand health research. So what you're saying, I mean, I think it's really interesting. One is it's a matter of convenience because we can do things right at our fingertips and that's a big driver. And the other is um, it seems like almost seeking the best of any category or any product. Is that, is that what's also driving a lot of that is seeking the best? Yeah, that's a really sharp insight, Darshan, because if you think that, and we do absolutely see this, if you have all this information at your fingertips, you don't want to make a poor decision. You don't want to show up in, you know, the t-shirt that comes from a company that everybody knows has terrible sustainability practices, or, you know, they have a sweatshop in Indonesia. Um, You don't want to buy the blender that actually had really terrible reviews and falls apart on you. You, you have all of this information, which means you have no excuse not to make the most informed and best choice. And that puts a lot of pressure on shoppers. We can't just walk into Sears and see they've got like four brands on the shelf and pick one that we think is the best price or the packaging was the best. We now have 50 brands to choose from in all of these different areas. And so there is this self-imposed pressure and also societal imposed pressure that why would you buy the product that wasn't great. Well, it's because you didn't do your research. If you didn't do your research, you're not very smart or you don't care or whatever it might be. So there is a lot of pressure to, you know, make a really informed decision, which is feeding into that research loop, which is increasing the need to research. So, you know, when you were to, let's say, evaluate the components of how does one evaluate the best, uh, how much of that is based on what the brand actually says, Uh, versus, let's say, third-party studies, as well as uh, just uh, user reviews? I mean, what what kind of balance are you seeing that really drives what one considers is the best to make that uh, informed, uh, good decision? Yeah. Brand certainly still has a role, but it doesn't have the dominant role that it did in the past. And that's not true in all categories. In some categories, brand is still, you know, luxury fashion, for instance, Um, it is still predominant. But um, for the most part, if you think about the way that people are shopping these days, if you're online, you're searching by the type of thing you want to buy, then you're filtering by Prime or free shipping or customer review or some other feature that you need this thing to have. Um, And by the time we get through our filters, it's at that point when the algorithm has served up you know, a a list of products for us, the brand starts to come into play. But those brands are presented very equally to one another. I'm not seeing a big logo or, you know, a splashy brand ad. I'm seeing a picture of the product um, next to another picture of the product, of a different product. And that product might have more reviews that are stronger, right? Well, I may know this brand, but if that one has a lot of reviews and they're really positive, why wouldn't I click on that and look at it? Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's, I'm not saying that brand doesn't matter and that we shouldn't put emphasis on it and pay attention to it. It absolutely does matter because part of the things that go into people's decision-making is, do I feel good about this purchase? And it's about aligning with the brand that you feel good about. So brand matters, but is it the, um, is it going to drive the purchase decisions? Um, Not the majority of them, uh, not anymore. When you say brand matters, I think that also, I think if you're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, saying that, you know, you put out a message and people may review it and it may be even negative or whatever, but a lot of what matters is how the brand responds to it. Isn't that also a big part of that? Yeah. I I mean, it's gotten really hard for brands to hide 
right? They can't, they're everything from how they treat their employees to their supply chain to, um, you know, their tax uh, participation. I mean, all that kind of stuff is under scrutiny now. Um, people are really looking at it. And um, it becomes part of that brand story. And I think that means that for brands in the future, they're really going to have to think more integrated about what is their identity and then are they living that identity authentically across all aspects of the business, not just the product that they put out or the ads that they put out, um, but are they supporting that through every business decision that they make? And a classic example I always go to is Patagonia, right? Patagonia has a very clear brand identity Mm -hmm. and their materials are sourced according to that brand identity the way that they sell their products, the way they treat their employees, everything about that brand um, is easy to understand um, because it is very, very clear about who they are. So I think brand is more now. It, it, it is it is packaging, it is advertising, but it is also who you are, what you stand for, how you are seen in the world, how you handle controversy, right? How you talk about things that have gone wrong. All of that is now part of the brand identity um, and all has to be given equal attention. I think what I'm hearing you saying is that basically it's all, it's much more now about humanizing the brand. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've talked about corporate citizen, you know, uh, responsibility and, um, and that, but it's not sort of in the like late nineties, early two thousands way of this idea of like greenwashing, right? Like Barks is going to stick a green right. label on their thing and say, you know, whatever. Uh, people are much more savvy and, and, you know, kids coming up are savvier still. My son refuses to let us eat at Chick-fil-A because he knows the owner, my 11 year old, he knows that the owner supports causes that he doesn't support. Interesting. How do you learn about this? I don't <laughs> even school know. Or, or internet or you don't know. From school or friend <laughs> or who knows, who knows. Um, he saw it in our trash can because my husband and I had gone there for lunch and we got a scolding. So, <laughs> I mean, it is really about knowing that all parts of your brand are visible and what is that telling your, your consumer? And so how is this going to change or how is it influencing how companies should look at innovation? Yeah, it's a real, it's a real challenge because there's product innovation, right? There's mechanical actual innovation going on, which has traditionally always been the case, although the pace of that continues to just explode. Um, but then there's plus, also that's innovation. also something people can replicate uh, at some point yeah. to a degree, right? So, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 but you're exactly right. Like the ability to hold on to a unique feature or, uh, yeah, a unique product is fading quickly. Um, but also innovation in how you interact with your customers, right? Um, a great example is I think the way that restaurants adapted during COVID where now, uh, you go and the waitress just gives you a receipt with a QR code on it and you pay through your phone. You don't exchange anything with a waitress or menus aren't handed out. There's a QR code on the table or something that you need to click on to look at the menu. We've adapted very quickly to that and some people actually prefer it. Um, and um, there are ways that I think that brands need to be thinking about. Let me give you an example. When something is easy for a customer in one category, they want it to be easy everywhere else, right? I can get on my phone, go on an app, dial up a car to come pick me up at a certain time, set my preferences of how much conversation I want to have and how loud I want the music to be, 
get in the car, get to my destination, never exchange money with a person or feel like I even have to, you know, have a conversation with them. When something is that easy, right? Then we go into another experience that feels frustrating or challenging, like, you know, buying a car, right? Like, oh, it's kind of talk to this guy and then he's going to go talk to his manager and we're going to go through this whole charade that we both know is fake and it becomes frustrating and it irritates consumers and so they're going to be looking at things like CarMax or other solutions where they can just have that easy experience. So it's not only about innovating in terms of the products in your category, but it's also thinking about innovating the customer's experience so that you are living up to experiences that they're getting from other brands, even if those brands aren't in your category. Yeah, I think yeah, you're absolutely right. I think people nowadays are not just buying products, they're buying experiences, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I know this is not a hard and fast rule, but what would you say would be a good mix for companies to concentrate on? Let's say if they were, if they had to split their innovation efforts, how much should be on product versus ex- experience these days? 100% on both <laughs> is the appropriate half, answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, they need to go 100% on both. Yeah, I think it's... Um, Actually, is, I would, I would is, even argue, I think there's more ability to innovate on the experience than there might be in some cases the product, right? Uh, not that you can't innovate on the product. And I think sometimes the product innovation may come in a different direction based on uh, a better and a deeper understanding of some of the pain points and triggers for consumers. And I think that could really drive product innovation, but I think there's a lot of room still to emphasize and evolve and change and improve uh, the consumer experience. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, companies like Qualtrics moved towards consumer experience, you know, a few years ago, kind of pivoted and thought about their metrics around that and how are we asking that. And UX obviously has become a very big part of the industry. Um, but I think it's also about understanding sort of the deeper um, experiences of that, right? It's not just how navigable was this site or how easy was it for me to use this app or how friendly was my retail person that I bought this product from. It's also about how it makes you feel as a human being and how we're connecting to it. And our expectations have increased. Um, We expect uh, to have these certain levels of experiences with brands because we're getting them elsewhere. Um, And so we want them everywhere. We want everybody to treat us like EIPs, you know? Um, And so when that falls apart, it has a it has a big impact on on the brand. So I, I think you can't take your eye off of it, um, and you've got to be thinking. You've got to understand like what is the sort of like emotional driver that gets people to want to do those things, right? The check that comes with the QR code on the table. Like my emotional driver of that is that I'm a big introvert. Believe it or not, all <laughs> the talking that I'm doing, but I'm a big introvert, and the idea of like less exchange with other people is great, right? I don't have to hand somebody my card and then wait for them to come back, and like I do it all, and I can leave. Um, that is, that's a kind of like a core need of mine that that's filling. Um, so it's about really getting into that, like the emotional reason why, which is why I think like you know, again, going back to mixed modal and, you know, neuroscience and all of these other things to, to try to dig those insights out, I think are where brands are really going to um, need to be thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is that uh, there's usually three things that can really help you become successful. Uh, and those are, if you can save people time, 
money or make it easier. Right. And I think if you can do one of them, it's like a one X chance of being uh, successful. And if you can do all three, it's like three X, but I think there's a, there's the fourth element and that is evoking an emotion. And I think that's what you're talking about. And if you can evoke an emotion, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a four X. It could be six, 10, 12 X, who knows, depending on the emotion, because part of that emotion is going back to, I think the other thing we talked about is when you have an experience that you feel has tapped into an emotion, what is the first thing you're going to want to do, right? Share it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. and that's, and that, and that's what's going to help drive is this kind of best in the category. Cause I think related to being best in the categories is also about how you're perceived by your peer groups and people around you when you do buy a product and the reactions they have. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which goes back to that anxiety that we've built into the shopping process now. And I think I love that concept, Gershon, because is that, that, you know, fourth piece the emotional piece can it be strong enough to outweigh like i'll buy something more expensive that's harder to get to that doesn't you know it takes more time um it may be depending on the experience you know people willing to shell out a ton of money for um you know nfts right now which arguably aren't a product at all um but the emotional thing that they get from that purchase, right? Outweighs all of the other things that they have. So I think emotion is incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, again, from uh, the smallest product that we use every day to the, to the big ticket items, it's becoming really important to consumers too. Um, and that, that won't go away. Interesting. This kind of goes back to our initial talk about primates, isn't it? (laughs) And emotions and things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are really still driven by a lot of the same things, you know? Yeah. So this brings me to an interesting thing I want to talk to you about anyways, and that is a a big study that you started doing back in uh, 2019. And then Mm. lo and behold, uh, we had this major event called COVID happen. (laughs) So you did a lot of research on this. I think you've done some really interesting things and how that's obviously changed a lot. So can you kind of tell me some of the the three key findings? And let me describe a little bit about what happened with your study as well, but also the key three three key insights that you really think uh, were revealing to you and that you think might be something that really people need to think about moving forward. Yeah. No, thank you for that. It was um, one of those random like things that just, we got lucky where in the fall of 2019, we were talking about doing some of our own research and searching around for a topic. And somebody had brought up that, you know, we're just in general, we're just seeing a lot more anxiety in qualitative and quantitative research, people feeling very anxious. And so that led us to create a study um, around fear, right? What are the things that you fear? What are you doing to overcome them? How do you feel your community and your government is doing with these things? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was in November of 2019. Um, 2020 comes along with COVID. And then in the summer of 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, and we started having riots and protests here, Um, we all got very somber and thought, you know, we need to go back. Like we're all feeling exponentially more fearful and anxious and stressed about the world around us. So let's go back in and do another um, wave of research. And then we decided to go back in again after the election had been called for Biden to try to get a sense of sort of this, you know, three part piece of, you know, how were things changing for people? So the three big insights, um, actually, I'll use Peter Atwater, who's an economist that we um, 
interviewed heavily in the third piece. All of these are available on the website to download if you want to take mm-hmm. a look at them. Um, but he talked about confidence. And when confidence is low, when people are feeling scared, they move from a us together forever perspective into a me here now perspective. Things become very sort of short-sighted, very much about you and your immediate environment. And we did see a lot of that coming out in the data. Can you give me an example so that people can better understand that? I mean, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So let's take, for instance, um, international politics. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 2019, there was interest in international politics. People were concerned about it. They had some fears about it. By the end of 2020, in our last wave of research, it, international politics dropped to the, to the bottom. It was really about uh, the economy, healthcare, and um, you know, racial politics in the U.S. Uh, another example is that healthcare remained a primary issue. It was a, it was a big issue in November 2019. But when you ask people why, it was about costs. It's too expensive. Um, you know, summer of 2020, after COVID's hit, it's about lack of care, mm. um, inaccessibility, um, you know, trust. Those So the, the healthcare remained a priority, but what the issues were around it really shifted. Um, so this idea of moving more sort of like immediately, like, hey, buddy, I know you have problems, but I've got a lot of problems too. Um, is kind of how we go. And then it also means in terms of purchases, if you want to take it back to brands, it's about satisfying more that immediate me here now, right? What do I need to solve this problem right now? Um, and so that pushes people a little bit away from things like sustainability or, you know, best global practices and that kind of stuff and pushes them more towards price, um, more towards comfort, convenience, you know, those things. So, um, there's sort of this, you know, broader psyche at work. And the reason that we wanted to talk to Peter Atwater was because he had developed a theory of K-shaped recovery. So if you think about uh, economic, you know, decline, it goes down on the chart and then it bounces back up. That's your V. But a K-shaped recovery is where only part of the population goes back up mm-hmm. and another part of the population continues to decline. And that was something we saw play out in our data very, very strongly. So when you look at the third wave, um, where Biden had gotten elected, it seemed at the time that COVID might be slowing down. Um, People that were wealthier, people that were more stable, like they had, uh, you know, they we asked some questions around their uh, sense of financial insecurity. Like, I can't handle if I have a big financial issue Mm -hmm. um you know things like that people that were more secure completely starting back up on the k right Mm -hmm. they're recovering they're going back up white people for the most part going back up but um people with lower economic um stability um people of color people that have lost somebody to covid which was another metric we started tracking they continue to go down and Mm -hmm. it creates it's kind of two different realities in the country, right? One group feeling positive and hopeful and moving away from the me here now back into the us together forever. And another group that is continuing to tighten up and feeling disenfranchised because they are still suffering. I think that's still going on today, even though we haven't done the research. But one of our recommendations was for brands is to really understand who your shopper is and where are they on this day. 
um, and kind of what are their needs at the moment? And are you really serving what their emotional health is? You would imagine that most people that make marketing and product decisions at brands are typically wealthier, more financially stable, right? They could be on that upward end of decay and feeling pretty good about life, but their customer base could actually still be on the low leg of decay. And are they really understanding what their customers need? Interesting. So this might be actually more of a contributor to the the divide that people are sensing in the country, more so than politics. Uh, it might be that this is kind of driving the politics versus people think politics is driving the divide. Yeah, I wish I knew. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, I, knew but I, I don't know the answer to that, but it makes, it makes a, me think about that, yeah. Yeah, but I do think it's a much more complicated. It's not just like, hey, we have to get along and talk, right? It's a much more complicated thing that's driving all of this division. Um, yeah, I think you're talking about, the, think, it's about the fabric of our society, correct? Yeah. yeah, and being heard and understood, right? Does everybody feel heard and understood? Right. Yeah. This is, this is deep stuff, Darshan. <laughs> I know, a little too deep. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, you, you've done some interesting, you're doing some interesting work with augmented reality. And also you talked about how people should be asking different questions and thinking about research differently. So tell me a little bit about both that. I mean, which direction do you think people should be thinking and what kind of questions should they be uh, thinking about asking more so? And then also tell me a little bit about what you're seeing happening with augmented reality and the future of it. Yeah, well, let's start there with augmented reality because we've, done a few really interesting studies on it. And luckily our client, Snap, Snapchat, um, has published them. So those are also available if you want to go take a look at them. But really about how augmented reality in this time, exactly back to what we were talking about with the customer experience. How do you make the customer's experience um, more powerful, more enjoyable, more emotional for them? And augmented reality can play a big part in that. You know, we're already using augmented reality, even though we don't think about it, like, you know, Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's in our lives to some degree, but it will become more prevalent. Mm-hmm. It allows people to kind of co-create their environment, if you will, um, and allows brands to interact with people in a, in a different way, change the shopping experience. People really like it. Um, even though they don't necessarily know that they're talking about augmented reality, um, like Snapchat lenses, right? The filters that you put on, that's augmented reality. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it is, I think, and certainly something that younger generations are even more comfortable with. They're growing up kind of native to it and they feel really comfortable with the concept of it um, and you know, don't have any of the same sort of concerns about privacy or separation or whatever it may be. Um, And I think that blends into the bigger thing that people are talking about a lot these days, which is this idea of a metaverse and a sort of an augmented reality arena that we all live in that, you know, um, I think that the the changes that are coming are going to continue to be really big, which is why this, you know, shopper promiscuity and and all of this stuff that we're talking about, like, it's only going to get worse or better, depending on your perspective. Um, and so I think either way more complicated. <laughs> much more complicated. Yeah. And it's a it's a new way, it's a new channel for brands to interact with their customers. And so um it should definitely be explored and looked at and innovated in. Um, because there's a lot of opportunity there. Well, you know, it's interesting what made you and me think about something is I'm almost thinking part of this is uh, not just the experience, but a way of giving people a way to escape from reality just in a little way with augmented 
reality. You know what I'm saying? Cause it's a, it's a yeah. way to kind of introduce a whole new element into what your realities, which you're always used to, but it's a little bit of an escape. Uh, do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personal experience. Uh, I really want to renovate my kitchen. I don't have the money or the time to renovate my kitchen, but I dream about it, but I can go on some apps and, you know, uh, hold it up to my kitchen <laughs> and look and see yeah. like, that's what that backsplash would look like. Oh, I really like that cabinet style. And I can have <laughs> a little daydream um, about my kitchen that I will never realize. So yeah, it is. It's about um, some escaping. It's about having an experience that you may not be able to have in, you know, IRL in real life, right? Yeah. That you get yeah. to have through an augmented reality experience. So um, there is also a lot of emotion in that, deep emotion in that. So sort of connecting into that, figuring out what's driving people and making them happy is going to be really powerful. Yeah, yeah. So you really see this is going to be a, a big component in enhancing the customer experience moving forward, huh? It's, well, it's another opportunity, right? It's, an, it's another chance um, in the way that, you know, social media over the last five years has become another opportunity for brands to engage with and interact mm-hmm. with shoppers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, beyond that, I don't know what kind of impact it's going to have. I don't know what Zuckerberg is planning for our metaverse <laughs> and our future. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, looking at how my kids will, uh, you know, beg for money to buy things in Roblox, right? That they will never own physically, but they desperately need to have. Um, and they're going to grow up to be adults that desperately need to have something in the metaverse. And mm. so, mm. Um, you know, it's here. Yeah. So what aspect of consumer experiences would you like to do a deeper dive moving forward and, and why? You know, we're doing this study. We actually just kicked off with a client and it's not going to be published, so I can't mention who they are. Um, but around this idea of um, taking this particular feeling, which I can't even say because it's so connected to their brand and it let you know who they are, but taking this particular feeling and saying like, okay, this feeling... Um, let's call it success. That'll be an easy one. Okay, so success. What does success look like now, post-COVID? Not even post, in the middle of COVID, but what, how have people's perceptions of success changed, right? Is it money? Is it power? Is it influence? Is it happiness? Is it um, being able to take care of the people around you? Is it a sense of fulfillment? Like, what how, how has the last couple of years shifted our priorities in a way that we're now thinking about this big idea differently? It's still the same idea. It's still success, but what's the new nuance mm-hmm. around it? Um, and I, I love doing that kind of work. We love rolling up our sleeves and getting, you know, into that. And uh, I think it's, it's our clients are really pushing and, and we're, we're, you know, seeing it happen now where, Brands are going beyond like, okay, we have a tracker, we do copy testing, you know, we'll run a segmentation every five years, you know, and then we'll have a couple of ad hocs and starting to think about these much bigger, meatier questions that kind of define deeper emotional relationships that people are having to brands. And I just think that that's going to become more and more paramount is, you know, like you said, innovation can become parody very quickly. Um you know, things are always changing. So what is the kind of anchor, the emotional anchor that you're going to have with people? I would think a big uh, factor uh, in that you might find is, uh, again, I'm just speculating, is controlling your time and what you do with your time. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's a big shift that I'm kind of sensing that people are having since COVID 
It's, uh, you know, where they're uh, putting their time and their, and their money is, is much more important. It has to be have more purpose and meaning and all of that is, uh, is I would think one of the areas that things are shifting in. So. Yeah, I would agree. We did some work with uh, Quibi before they closed. Um, they hadn't famously, they hadn't done any research about their product or consumer mm. interest in their product um, before they launched. And then they had this, you know, the Quibi was the streaming media service where everything was under 10 minutes, right? These little digestible packets of information. And um, we came back to them and said, like, they, they saw this as a time saver, right? Something that with a really busy life could get a few minutes here or there, some content and like mm-hmm. fill this little void as they're on the subway going from one thing to another, whatever. And, you know, what they fundamentally missed, which, you know, our research showed was like, people don't want to consume that way. People want the escapism, right? They want to cuddle up on the couch with some popcorn and a significant other or a puppy and like have a, have a way from, they don't want to add entertainment into their busy, hectic lives, right? Yeah, um, it, it just makes things seem like it's going too fast. And in some ways, I think people yeah. are looking for a little bit deeper, more meaning as well, even though it's, we're so rushed. I think kind of the escape that we're all kind of looking for is, hey, I want to delve a little bit deeper and have some more meaning in some of the things I'm doing throughout my day. Yeah, and their their concept of time, really, right? The way that the, the people at Quibi interpreted time was that it's this precious resource and we're going to make it easy for people to access us in limited amounts of time without understanding that the emotional component, right, of entertainment was about preserving this longer period of time for yourself um, and your family to be together and to experience something. So I think that you're right. Like, it's not just about, is it more convenient? It's about is is the time that I'm spending worth the whatever other investment is to you know to do that. And um, if it's a product or a category you don't really care about, you want to get in, you want to get out. It's price, it's convenience, it's other things. But you know we're all our priorities have shifted. Right? I think everybody's priorities have shifted, um, and we are thinking about things more deeply, and we are more precious with our time as we should be. Yeah. And it's funny because you think about it. I mean, uh, you know, binge watching <laughs> is something that's really kind of taken off. Now it's facilitated, but who would have thought that people would be spending an entire weekend watching a series or whatever, but it does happen. Oh and gosh. I think people are looking for that kind of escape to kind of just, uh, you know, get more immersed in something and, and see a more developed uh, story that evolves over a, a prolonged period of time. Cause it's just, it kind of, you know, extends the escape as well as the, the engagement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I remember being so upset at work, realizing that I forgot to set the VCR to record my favorite show that I wasn't <laughs> going to be able to get home in time to see, right? And then now it's all here. It's so amazing. Yeah, it's um, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, listen, this has been great talking to you. I really appreciate all the uh, examples and stories you've told us. Uh, my last question to you is, if who in the world of consumer insights, research, marketing, would you love to have lunch with and why? That is such a hard question. I'm thinking about, um, you know, brands that I'm really interested in that I think are doing exciting things. But I would also love to talk to somebody that works at a brand that is really struggling to find out what they're doing about it. Um, Gosh, Darshan, you ask a curious person to pick one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you can tell me. Maybe you can Um, tell me a couple of brands you think are doing some interesting things that everyone should kind of look at and learn from. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, you know, Patagonia always, um, 
but I also think like, uh, well, I, I'm a gamer. I play a lot of uh, video games and board games and what's happening now in the gaming community with Microsoft buying Activision and with Sony now buying um, another company whose name escapes me at the moment, but they're a big uh, producer of games and sort of this process that people are going through in the gaming environment of consolidation under major brands and what does that mean for the everyday player um, pay to play and how is that working and also the gaming experience talk about augmented reality it is so bright for um, really interesting advances in the way people experience games and consume games so I'll put that I'll say I, want, I would like to talk to uh, the chief insights person at um, Activision or Sony or yeah, one of those yeah. I think yeah. it's related back to what we talked about. I think, again, the emphasis on people are seeking escapism, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think part of that's also was driven a lot why a lot of people eat outside, right? Because we're so busy with our daily lives, you know, running around back and forth that we look for that time to socialize with our friends and family uh, over a meal and having a nice experience. And that's why a lot of restaurants are, it's not just about the food, it's about the total experience. I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of success. Yeah, for me, it's about not having to cook the food. <laughs> I, like, I like going somewhere else where somebody cooks it and then they clean up after me. You don't need to run your kitchen. Then. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point. This has been so much fun. Oh, this um, is great. Thank, thank you. you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.